Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, a debate on the elusive libertarian moment. Catherine Ross discusses how schools subvert the First Amendment, and Tom Wainwright explains narconomics. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The feds for a long time have consumed 20 percent, give or take, of GDP. And as we record this ahead of tax day, uh, some of us are – that fact is being brought into sharp relief. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. fiscal imbalance. It's a white paper by Jeffrey Myron and here to talk about that and what that means and some of the uh, politics surrounding it. I'm talking to Jeff Myron, who is the director of economic studies at the Cato Institute and Megan McArdle, the columnist at Bloomberg. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So to start here, uh, Jeff, we have watched the political season unfold with almost no mention of debt, uh, spending, borrowing, plenty of talk about taxes, but of course, uh, that's what affects us most directly. So give us a picture of what the U.S. fiscal imbalance looks like. Well, the picture I paint in this white paper is that while we have a higher explicit debt relative to GDP than we've had in the past, it has gradually been nudging up over decades. It's by itself not terribly alarming. It's not so different than lots of other major countries. It's not so different than the U.S. has experienced in its uh, history. But what is different is that over the past 30, 40 years, we've added a bunch of entitlement programs, programs that promise to pay people retirement benefits and health benefits into the infinite future. And those have become so expensive and are projected to be so expensive that, in fact, our fiscal situation is quite dire, we are on a path to becoming a country like Greece, even though we certainly have decades before we're actually in that position. So uh, on on the the debt picture, because we have these two elements, uh, federal explicit debt is $17, $18 trillion, but that is a small fraction, uh, as you point out here, of the uh, money that has been committed to certain purposes long into the future. Exactly. The amount that we owe to people we have explicitly promised to because we've borrowed from them up until this point, which is partially ourselves but also substantially to other countries, to foreigners uh, around the world, that's something like $16, 17000000000000 trillion. But the amount that we owe, we've promised we're going to pay in future is roughly $120 trillion if you accept my calculation. So it's a much, much bigger number than the explicit debt. All right. So, Megan McArdle, to you, I will ask – uh, why don't people talk about this as a problem, a massive looming problem that is scary and terrifying? Um, because it's fun now, so why don't we worry about it later? I mean, so, so politics has this kind of unique quality, which is that usually, you know, for a person, your debt, um, it evaporates when you die, mostly, as uh, as our joint uh, hero, Dave Ramsey, likes to say, what you owe, own stands good for what you owe. But after your estate is cleared, 
um, your debts go away. They can't take more than is in your state. They can't come after your kids, et cetera. Well, governments don't die. There's never that moment at which you clear away the debt. Um, it just keeps passing on to your kids and your kids' kids. And that actually makes the politics a little strange. When I have debt, I worry about it because I know that at some point I'm going to have to pay that debt or I'm going to have to declare bankruptcy, which will be really unpleasant. But for politicians who are deciding to take on that debt, they're not going to be in office when probably when problems come due. Um, they may not even be alive. It may be their children or their grandchildren. And there's also this thing of um, is that often when people think about how much they can borrow, they look at their payment, their monthly payment, instead of how much debt are you taking on relative. It's not entirely irrational. It is irrational if you're taking on a variable rate loan, which is what we're doing. <laughs> people like to talk about how low the interest rates are now. And of course, we should borrow a lot of money um, because interest rates, are it's practically nothing. People are practically paying us to take their money. And the problem with that is that if you look at uh, a lot of, if you look at people who had good teaser rates on their mortgages, the same thing basically happened to countries during the financial crisis, which is that as rates go went up, they started having to refinance that debt at higher and higher rates. So even though the rate on the original debt was low, it wasn't payable once those rates started to go up. And people say, well, the US borrows in its own currency. It can't happen here. And that's just nonsense. We do borrow in our own currency. There are certain kinds of financial problems that we won't have. But borrowing your own currency, first of all, is not like if it's not something that we get because everyone loves the Rocky Mountains so much. We get it because we're good stewards of our currency. And if we stop being good stewards of our currency, we can stop being able to borrow in our own debt. And second of all, you still have to roll that debt over. And if you can't just inflate your way out of the problem, because as you try to inflate, people start asking for higher and higher interest rates. And so you know, the only way that we're going to pay this money back, ultimately, is to dig into taxpayer pockets and hand out some money to uh, investors. And But people don't like worrying about it. And because it's so complicated, because there's all of these little economic irrationalities, it's very easy for people who would rather spend money on fun now um, to talk their way out of taking responsibility for it. So, Jeff Myron, to you, uh, if the United States rolls over its debt regularly, uh, what does a relative, what is a small change in the interest rate that we have to pay on that mean for federal spending? Well, if our debt is 1.7, sorry, 17 trillion, and interest rates go up by 1%, that's still another 170 billion in expenditure we would have each year, that's a big amount relative to the size of federal spending overall. And interest rates could go up several percentage points. So if interest rates go up by even a modest amount, that makes the situation much, much worse. But I emphasize it's really bad even if interest rates don't go up at all. And that's not likely, but even if they don't change, it's still really bad. Right. But in terms of possible feedback effects of uh, changes in the U.S. economy, uh, because, I mean, our ability to pay back this debt is a function of uh, American taxpayers' productive capacities, uh, future taxpayers' productive capacities increasingly. But if, if we're having to add on massive amounts of uh, dollars just to keep current on debts, that would seem to challenge the productive capacity or the productive willingness of uh, taxpayers at a certain point. Is that right? Exactly. There are sort of three possible reactions to the situation. 
two are sort of the same. You, we can raise taxes, but as we raise taxes, we will start to discourage productive activity. Then there's less output or a slower growing rate of output to be taxed, and so the situation even gets worse. At some point, you run into the you hit the peak of the Laffer curve. You're getting less revenue at even even at higher tax rates. Alternatively, we can have very high inflation to inflate away our debt. Some of that, in some sense, sounds good. It's stealing from foreigners to whom we've promised to repay our debts. Okay? But as we do that, as Megan pointed out, that will cause people to demand even higher interest rates to be willing to lend to us, and that will become problematic. And a higher inflation rate is just in really one other form of a higher tax. Or we can cut expenditure. Now, how you feel about that depends on which expenditure we're talking about and whom you're asking. My judgment is that there are some aspects of expenditure which would be extremely productive to cut, and we would have a better functioning economy if we reduce that expenditure. So to the extent that's right, there actually is a good economic response to the problem. It's not a politically very uh, marketable response. And you should also, I think it's really important to say that even when you're talking about a lot of these expenditures, when you're talking about cutting them, um, there's good cuts and bad cuts, right? Now, with Social Security, for example, a good cut is saying to people 20 years out, look, you, you, need, to, you need to plan for your retirement. Here's some ways you can do that, et cetera. A bad cut is saying, well, you've retired, you're 80, we just cut your Social Security benefits by a third. Um, and the problem with the way that we treat the, these issues is that because we don't want to do the hard work now when we can, because you've got all of these excuses for why we don't need to do this, um, what you make more likely is those bad cuts where you are just taking people who maybe they shouldn't have but did, relied on the government promise that this was going to be there for them, and are now in a position where they can't do anything to recover from this catastrophic default to beneficiaries. The, yeah, the parallel that I, I like to draw for that exactly exact kind of promise was tobacco quota. And <laughs> the, federal, the federal government created an asset essentially right. out of thin air. Uh, a lot of farmers made investments based upon that promise. And then uh, Mitch McConnell basically uh, engineered a buyout to uh, end that asset, uh, to close out that asset. And uh, it it's hard for me to uh, think to, – to hold anything against people who have made decades-long plans right. based upon these kinds of promises. Um, uh, Jeff, before we started recording here, we were talking about uh, Paul Ryan, who uh, is the, is protesting perhaps too much about whether or not <laughs> right. he uh, will would be willing to be the Republican nominee for president. But he made it, you know he made this a a part of his major project in Congress was to avoiding these kinds of uh, you're retired now and we're going to cut off your benefits, trying to ease us out of the situation that we're in. Is something like that even possible? I mean, any Congress can, of course, undo that uh, if if that were to be adopted. But is is that is that a, a path forward? To an economist, it's absolutely a path forward. The difficult is the politics, and I think Megan's emphasizing exactly the right problem, which is right now we don't feel as though we're about to fall off the cliff, and so people don't want to make the adjustments. They're a little bit too optimistic about how growth might save us from this issue, uh, a little bit not paying attention to how bad the details are. But, and I also emphasize we can fix it. Whatever libertarians might want, they might actually want us to repeal Medicare at 
you know, it's some in their ideal world. But nothing like that is necessary. What's necessary is moderate increases in the age of eligibility for Social Security, Medicare, other benefits, increases in the copays and deductibles so that people have more skin in the game, so that we get lower health cost inflation and things like that. We can still have a very significant, very generous social safety net okay, for the elderly, for everyone else, and be on a stable path. But the one we have now is so super generous that we can't afford that. I think the problem is that it's so easy to demagogue. And you look at, you know, I watched the, the Democratic debate last night as we're recording this the day after the, the New York debate. And, you know, every Republican who talks about this says, we need to have Social Security for my mother, for, you know, my grandmother, for the people who are retired now. We need to absolutely protect it. What we need to do is say to people who are younger, say my age, Marco Rubio's age, Ted Cruz's age, um, for those people, we need to start raising the retirement age, giving them time to adjust and so forth. And Democrats just come in and say, they want to cut Social Security. We need to strengthen it, right? And and that, that issue and the way that they propose to strengthen it is usually by eliminating the cap on Social Security taxes. And it's just a small thing. Well, it's a 12 percentage point increase in um, the tax rate on people who make more than $108,000 a year. Moreover, um, and again, you know, libertarians can disagree about whether we should or should not do that. Let's say we want to we want to get rid of that cap. We want to slap that 12 percent surtax on. Well, when you look at the f- kind of fiscal carrying capacity of our, our wealthy tax cattle, as I like to call them, um, you know, there's only so much you can carve off the bone before the cow dies. And that's about it. You will have taken all of that money and put it into one program. You won't have done anything about other entitlements, about Medicare, about Obamacare, about all of the other things that we have guaranteed people. You will have taken all of the potential money that we could raise from the wealthy with a very high like Denmark-style tax on, on those people, and you will have plowed it into one program that still wouldn't quite balance, rather than thinking holistically about all of the issues that we need to pay for, how we structure the whole budget so that it comes into long-term actuarial balance. Let's talk about the relative magnitudes of some of the uh, entitlement programs that are at the heart of uh, this uh, fiscal imbalance. Uh, In general, Jeff, how large are Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security and the expansions of various other programs under Obamacare, what are the magnitudes of the problem created by those programs? So Social Security is a non-trivial problem. It's projected to run out of money uh, in a decade or two. But the magnitude, the imbalance that it will have at that point is, say, 20, 25 percent. And the projections are that it would be relatively stable at that level of imbalance for a very long time. Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, the healthcare programs are all growing partially because of demographics. We have more and more people who are retired and eligible relative to the working age population to support it. And health cost inflation is well in excess of inflation for everything else. So those programs are projected to just grow to be infinitely larger than the entire economy, to eat the whole economy. That obviously can't happen. So if you had to really address one thing, it would actually be Medicare much more than Social Security. Um, more generally, it would be the health care programs, not just the Social Security program. And yet when we when we went to cut Medicare, we did actually do some pretty susta- substantial Medicare cuts. We spent it all on a new health care entitlement. We didn't spend any of that money on making the Medicare program uh, more balanced. And now you look at how you start to try to bring costs in line in Medicare. Well, all the, all the easy, even, even the politically plausible savings 
I would say more than because we're now refusing to do some of these taxes, but certainly all of the politically plausible savings that could have been gotten from that program were taken and used to expand another entitlement. And so it's really unclear how you, you really address the problems with Medicare. Well, let's talk about the credibility of all these promises that we've made because it's important to get into. And in some cases, at least uh, as I see it with certain certain federal programs, the political promise seems a good deal more credible at times than the promises we've made to people who hold U.S. treasuries. Is that fair? The political promise meaning Congress will never in a million years vote to make significant cuts in Medicare. And so something else is going to have to give, and maybe that will be the promises to foreigners who hold U.S. Treasury debt. Yes, that seems pretty plausible to me. Now, so save, look so at, save me from this future. If we look <laughs> at what happened in Greece, um, it actually was more the reverse. Okay. So they, in fact, have so far been honoring the debts, or there's been various reshuffling of monies around the European Union so that the bondholders, in fact, have been paid pretty much in full, and pensioners have experienced cuts, and the overall economy has experienced serious pain. So it's not clear based on that evidence, but I agree it's politically impossible to vote for any kind of cuts to Medicare. There are two scenarios that I think you can talk about following, and one we might call the Canada scenario, and the other is the Argentina scenario. Argentina is where you just say, ha, foreigners, you were really <laughs> dumb to borrow our money. <laughs> we're not giving it back to you. Um, and Canada is a situation where in the 90s, they actually started to, their interest rates really started to creep up, and they had a major fiscal reform under a liberal government um, that has put them really actually in sort of better fiscal shape in a lot of ways than the United States. Um, how do you decide whether which of those scenarios is going to happen? I mean, first of all, part of it is political culture. And I think in, the good news for the U.S. is we don't like to stiff our creditors. Second of all is the speed at which it occurs. Um, so the fact that it was happening a little bit slowly for Canada, right, gave them some room to talk about restructuring. The fact that it happened so fast for Argentina, um, that everything sort of collapsed and suddenly the, de the debt really was unpayable and needed to be structured, um, meant that it was likely that foreigners were going to get haircuts. That said, they gave foreigners bigger haircuts than they needed. And of course, the reason it got so out of control in the first place was that there had been warning signs they had not heeded. The third thing I think that you have to look at and what's really the story of Greece is that Greece is was not until quite recently and still kind of in and out of uh, running what's known as a primary surplus, which is to say that if you got rid of all of the interest um, on their debt and they didn't have to pay any of it, they were still in deficit. When that occurs, you need to borrow more money from the people abroad. At that point, it's not a good time to tell them, to heck with you, I'm not paying. Um, if you were in a primary surplus, as Italy has been uh, for most of the crisis, for example, you're in a much better position to stiff foreigners than if you're still borrowing money. And that's one of the things where we talk about inflation, where we talk about all of these things, is people say, oh, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just inflate our way out of the problem. And you get this from both conservatives who are terrified it will happen and liberals who are kind of thinking <laughs> it might be a good idea. And the problem with that is that it only works if you're in primary surplus. As long as you have to borrow more money, uh, what you quickly end up with is uh, you have to be paying down your debt pretty fast for inflation to be a reasonable way to, to deal with a, a deficit problem. I don't really want to talk about uh, low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, cuts because these uh, problems seems very uh, relatively intractable and you want to include the low-hanging fruit in an overall package that would actually uh, begin the process of, of getting us out of this situation. But Jeff Myron, you argue that uh, a lot of countries are in this situation and it's 
really a matter of time uh, or, or when we hit the wall, when these various countries hit the wall, that is the issue. Exactly. So you can do similar calculations to the ones I've presented for the U.S. Other people have done those calculations, and all of the European countries are in a very similar position. They all have these implicit liabilities, these promises to their future uh, citizens for retirement benefits and health benefits that are vastly in excess of what they can plausibly pay, even if you make very optimistic assumptions about their future growth. What's slightly interesting is that relative to the U.S., European countries have way more committed for retirement benefits and relatively less on the hook for health benefits. That's partially because they have some kind of government-controlled healthcare system which is controlling prices or and or rationing quantities, and therefore their health expenditure is not projected to grow quite as crazily as in the U.S. And they've been even more generous on the retirement side, retirement ages of 60 or 58 and things like that. The U.S. actually, it's 67 for Social Security, so we are a little bit uh, better on that front. But the overall picture, combining all these promises, is terrible in every developed country. Yeah, what's funny actually is when you talk to people about demographic problems, because you know people forget that uh, that low retirement ages actually create two problems, not one. Uh, the first thing that they do is that they encourage people to retire early, which means that the tax base shrinks. And then on the other side, they lengthen the number of years that you have to pay out these pensions. Um, and so when you look at, um, as compared to basically almost every other developed country, the United States doesn't have the same incentives built into the system um, that European countries tend to to retire as early as possible. Because we, you don't get full benefit unless you retire, wait to retire until 67. And because of that, people, you can get a reduced benefit, but there is that incentive to staying and working, which helps on both ends. And so when you talk to pension experts from abroad, they speak with envy of the U.S. You know, we think <laughs> that our system is so terrible, but oh my, I just wish we could have something like Social Security. The other thing that you get out of Social Security systems is the more generous a retirement program is, the fewer kids people have. Um, and so what you see, there's actually like it's not just one paper. This has been replicated uh, several times. There's a real correlation. Well, what does that do? It's at the same time as you're, you're, you're building up the system, you're actually undercutting the financing mechanism for that system. And people frequently talk about immigration as a way to solve this. And unfortunately, when you look at that, the, the math doesn't really work, in part because every other country is undergoing the same demographic decline that we are, in part because the way we do immigration, at least, tends to be low-skilled immigration. So you're replacing an accountant who makes $150,000 a year with a house plasterer who makes $30,000 a year. The math doesn't really work out for the pension system. It helps a little bit. But overall, since immigrants tend to contribute somewhat less to tax coffers over their lifespan than, uh, than they take out, um, what we actually need to think about is building a system that is itself stable and in balance, not attempting to kind of fix the problem by importing other people to get into our Ponzi scheme. <laughs> so one aspect, I think, of making it a reasonable system is to think again about the goals. The goal of Social Security when it was created in 1935 and of the state-level systems that were similar that were being created in the 20s and early 30s was to help people who really could not help themselves. Life expectancy in 1935 was about 63, and the retirement age in Social Security back then was 65. So it was helping people who had outlived their ability to take care of themselves, to earn income for themselves. Now, 
as life expectancy has gone up and as Social Security has been relatively more generous, people have come to have the expectation that they have an extended period of retirement, which of course in and of itself is totally fine, but paid for by someone else, paid for by the taxpayer. Similarly with healthcare, those programs were created mainly in the mid-60s and life expectancy was higher, but still it has gone up a huge amount. So now you're asking the taxpayer to cover your health benefits for a significant fraction of your life, not just a year or two when you have outlived your ability to pay for your own health care and things like that. So if the goal is to give everybody this long period of generous retirement, that that's really, really expensive, and it's very different than the original goals. Of the yeah, program. and if you, it also, if you think about two things that have changed, is first of all, active life expectancy is actually rising even faster than regular life expectancy. So it isn't just that we're living longer, it's that we're actually healthier at every age than we were 30 years ago. And at the same time, the physical component of jobs, if you look at what people are doing in 1930s, the majority of people are doing things that are functionally kind of smarter horses, right? They're moving stuff from place to place. They're pulling a lever. They're stamping things. Um, in 2010, 2015, that's not really the case. And yet we have this system that's predicated on the idea that your body is going to wear out and be physically unable to work. Um, and of course, that does happen you know, to some people before 65, and, and there is a, a distribution. But in general, the population is much more able to work now at that age. So it isn't just that we expect that a lot of them will have died. It's that you know, we no longer have a labor market where it's reasonable to say, look, you're 65. You really can't be out there you know, pounding on a sledgehammer, putting the rail spikes in anymore. We, we think it's time to let you rest. This is a very depressing picture. <laughs> yes, very we depressing. don't uh, have a lot of uh, solutions that uh, can come in one fell swoop. It's definitely got to be a change in in attitude and and will to get it done. I would feel a little better if uh, throughout my working years, my grandparents had at least sent me a thank you note once in a while. Uh, but we'll close it with that. Uh, Jeff Myron, Director of Economic Studies at the Cato Institute and Megan McArdle, columnist at Bloomberg. The white paper is U.S. Fiscal Imbalance. You can get your copy at Cato.org. In his new book, Narconomics, Tom Wainwright examines the incentives, competitive pressures, and government impediments faced by drug cartels. In doing so, he reveals that they follow the same economic rules that govern business in any other field. Wainwright spoke at the Cato Institute in March. It seems to me that we very often focus very much on the supply side of this business rather than the demand side. And to give an example of this, look at the cocaine business. I went down to Bolivia in the course of researching this book to look at the, the cocaine business there. All of the world's cocaine originates in just three countries in the Andes. It comes from Bolivia, Colombia, and Peru. And so I went down there to have a look at what was going on. And the cocaine business, I think, represents a particular puzzle for economists because the idea is, is fairly straightforward. The idea is to try to cut into supply, because if you restrict supply and demand remains constant, then you'd expect the price to increase, right? It's fairly straightforward. And if the price goes up, you'd expect people to consume less of it. And yet that doesn't seem to be what has happened. If you look back over the past couple of decades, efforts to cut into supply have actually been quite successful. The governments of those three countries, Colombia, Bolivia, and Peru, have managed to eradicate very large quantities of, of coca leaf, which is the stuff that you need to make cocaine. These days, every year, they eradicate an area about the same size as, well, it's about 14 times the size of Manhattan, for instance. 
And this is an impressive thing. I mean, they have to do this while watching out for landmines, while being shot at. It's, it's an incredible feat that they do. And yet for all this, if you look at the price of cocaine, the retail price in the United States, it's hardly budged. If you go back a couple of decades, all that time it's remained around $150 per pure gram. It moves around a bit, but hasn't really changed much. So this is, you know, something of a puzzle. How has this happened? So I went there and had a look, and I think there are a couple of things to, to bear in mind there. One thing that it seems to me that's happening in South America is that you see a, a sort of Walmart effect, if you like. And it's important to make clear that, you know, Walmart here is not accused of any wrongdoing and, and so on. Um, but you do, you do see something similar to what people sometimes accuse Walmart of doing, which is acting as a sort of monopsony buyer. In other words, it's a monopoly buyer of some of these products. So the idea is that if you picture a, a regular market for something like apples, the idea is that in some of those markets, Walmart is such a dominant buyer that even if there's an interruption to supply, and you would normally expect farmers to raise their price as a result of that, Walmart has such a dominant position that it's able to say, well, sorry, guys, you know, we're the main buyer around here. We're going to set the price and it's not going to go any higher. And it seems as if actually something very similar is happening in some parts of South America in the cocaine business. You find that in some areas where coca leaf is grown, you have one cartel. It could be a Mexican cartel or it could be an armed group like the FARC in Colombia, which has effectively a monopsony buying position of the coca leaf in the area. And so they say, well, sorry, this is the price. And even if supply is interrupted, that's the price they continue to pay. And so those efforts to interrupt supply, it's not that they have no effect at all. It's that they're affecting the wrong people, it seems. Rather than affecting the cartels or affecting the consumers in the United States or in Europe, they're affecting the farmers who grow the stuff. And those are you know, really the people who we're probably least interested in, in harming. They're regular farmers who exist sometimes on about a dollar a day. And, and those are the people who seem to be bearing the brunt of all these exercises. There's a second point here on the supply business. And I think the, sort of, the economics suggest that even if you were able to increase the price of coca leaf, which it seems has been extremely difficult, even if you were able to increase it, there's very little reason to think that it would have much of an impact on the retail price in the rich world. And to explain how this happens, I'll give you a few numbers. To make a kilo of cocaine, you need about a ton of fresh coca leaf. It weighs less once you've dried it out, but it starts off weighing about a ton. And in Colombia, that ton of fresh leaf is worth about four or $500. Now, the kilo of pure cocaine, by the time it makes it to the United States and is sold in, in tiny quantities, is worth about $150,000. So imagine what happens. Even if you're very, very effective in raising the price of coca leaf, let's say you double it from $400 to $800. Now let's say you manage to push all of that extra cost onto the consumer in the United States. All you're going to do is raise the price of that kilo from $150,000 to $150,400. Or to look at it on the per gram level, you're going to raise the price of a gram by 40 cents. And that's what you get if you're incredibly effective in doubling the price of coca leaf. And I sometimes, in the book, I use the example of the art business and say it's rather like saying, okay, we want to try and raise the price of uh, works of art. And the main ingredient in a painting is paint. And so we're going to try and raise the price of a box of paints. And you can see this isn't going to be very effective. Imagine you know, a box of paints costs $50, we raise it to $100. What's that going to do to the price of a million-dollar painting? Nothing. And I think that's rather what we're doing in, in the coca business. So that was one thing that caught my attention. Another one, just to highlight one other thing, is the, um, the business of human resources. And that might not sound like the kind of thing that cartel people would be 
particularly concerned about, but it actually is. And I saw this when I went to interview the head of one of the big gangs in El Salvador. There are two big gangs in, in Central America based in El Salvador, um, Barrio 18, or the 18th Street Gang, and the Mara Salvatrucha. And I went to see the head of the 18th Street Gang, a, a guy named Carlos Mojica, who is currently in jail in a prison on the outskirts of San Salvador. And we sat down and we started talking about business. And his human resources problem is a serious one. If you picture these groups, to give you an idea of the size of them, these two groups together throughout Central America are reckoned to have about 70,000 members. So just for comparison's sake, that's about the number of people employed by General Motors in the United States. So they're fairly big organizations. And managing these guys is, is difficult, not least because he's in prison. Um, but organized crime groups in particular have two unique problems that affect them. One is that, of course, they have a very, very rapid turnover of their members of staff. And part of this is due to the very high rates of violence in those parts of the world. And those who aren't murdered are very often arrested. And there's an example that I read from the, um, the business of trafficking cocaine from the Caribbean to the UK. Um, about one in four of the cocaine mules on that route get arrested. And I was thinking, imagine trying to run a business, imagine trying to run a, a newspaper or a think tank or any other business in which a quarter of your staff had to be replaced with every transaction you made. It's, it's a real problem. And of course, this problem is compounded by the fact that organized criminal groups can't just advertise for new people. They can't place an ad in the paper. They can't look on LinkedIn. You know, Getting new people is, is a real problem for them. But fortunately for them, we've come up with the perfect solution to this. And we call it prison. It's this place where we helpfully get together all of the unemployed young men with criminal records. We put them in one place. We lock them in there for a few years. And in this jail that I visited in El Salvador, if you weren't a member of Carlos Mojica's gang when you went in, then you certainly were by the time you left. And again and again, we see examples of prisons being used as these sort of universities of crime. And for those of you who are watching Netflix, uh, watching Narcos on Netflix, you, you'll have come across this guy named Carlos Leda, who has a claim to be the person who introduced cocaine to the United States. And his cocaine trafficking career began when, by chance, he was put in a jail cell in Connecticut with a guy named George Young. And it was a perfect match. George Young was in there for trafficking marijuana by plane. Carlos Leda had contacts in Colombia. And the rest is history. They began trafficking cocaine in by plane, and, and America got its addiction. American public schools often censor controversial student speech that the Constitution protects. Catherine J. Ross, a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School, is author of Lessons in Censorship, How Schools and Courts Subvert Students' First Amendment Rights. At the Cato Institute in March, she discussed some of the various intrusions of schools into the lives and even minds of American young people. You lose all constitutional rights once you enter a school building, a school official in Suffolk County, New York, proclaimed in the spring of 2012. You're not allowed to do this, she asserted, as she confiscated flyers from an indignant student who was protesting her friend's five-day suspension. Layering censorship upon censorship, the episode had a surreal quality. The student whose plight prompted the pamphlets had been punished for voicing her opposition to bullying, but in a way the school deemed inappropriate. 
the seizure was as clueless as it was surreal because the First Amendment protects speech rights of public school students in grades K through 12. And yet, schools all over the country regularly censor constitutionally protected speech by children, and judges often let them get away with it. Now, when I use the word censorship throughout, I'm talking both about stopping speech before it happens and punishing it afterwards. Schools silence and punish students who express their own opinions on every side of important issues we adults are debating, including national and local politics, the rights of LGBT persons, guns, abortion, and more. They've suspended a six-year-old who called a classmate a poo-poo head. They stopped one elementary school girl from praying before eating her own lunch and another from distributing a homemade flyer that began, hi, my name is MB, in which she shared her personal experience that finding Christ was like finding a lost dog. The speech clause of the First Amendment is very concise. It says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. As interpreted, this means that the government and anyone acting on behalf of the government may not silence speech because of its content or viewpoint. School districts and everyone who works for them, from principals to teachers to school bus drivers, are the government when we talk about students' freedom to speak. My research and my comments today are limited to public schools because the First Amendment doesn't apply to independent schools, whether secular or religious. They're not the government. The Supreme Court first took up the issue of student speech rights in 1943, in one of the earliest cases in which it actually upheld the speech rights of any individual. Barnett versus West Virginia involved elementary school students. They were Jehovah's Witnesses who were at risk of expulsion and being sent to a juvenile reformatory because they refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance on the ground that it offended their religion. But it was not. Uh, litigated or interpreted as a religion case. The consequences today of speaking up and being punished can also be dire. Many students enter the school to prison pipeline as a result of being suspended, expelled, or sent to an alternative school for troubled students after they engage in protected speech. So just like the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1943, the consequences are stark. Barnett held that people, including young students, could not be forced to say what was not in their minds, a concept we today called the rule against compelled speech. The court emphasized the constitutional limits on the state's coercive powers, whether exercised by, quote, village tyrants or by the federal government. And it underscored that the First Amendment was designed to protect nonconformists of all stripes. The court particularly focused on schools because the case involved two elementary school girls. It said, because schools are educating the young for citizenship, they must scrupulously protect individual rights if we're not to strangle the free mind at its source and to teach youth to discount important principles of government as mere platitudes. Decades later, the court returned to student speech and began to carve out a special way of assessing claims that schools had illegally censored student expression. The first and iconic Supreme Court case in modern times 
and here I'm just listing the cases. I don't expect you to retain all of them, but so you don't wonder when I say the names. The, the, I, the first modern case is Tinker versus Des Moines, decided in 1969 at the height of the Vietnam War. And it held that schools had violated the First Amendment by suspending students who wore black armbands to school in order to protest the war. The court took into account all the things society expects schools to accomplish, especially the importance of educating young for citizenship. And it crafted a special test that gave schools more leeway to restrain speech than the government has in the world at large. It announced that schools could not censor student expression unless authorities had a reason to anticipate that the speech could lead to material disruption of the school's function or collide with the rights of others. And in short, I'll refer to this as the material disruption test. As the court became more conservative, under every new chief justice, it gradually carved out exceptions to the material disruption test in three later cases. These gave schools more and more power to censor student speech but did not extinguish student speech rights. Two of the exceptions gave the schools discretion to censor student expression that's lewd or speech that advocates the use of illegal substances, which you may recognize as the bong hits for Jesus case. The most important exception stems from Hazelwood versus Kalmeyer, a 1988 decision that created a special category of speech the court labeled school-sponsored. If speech is school-sponsored, it it's treated as if the school is speaking and the student is not, even though the speech originates with the student in such places as high school papers or literary magazines, but also much further. To be school-sponsored, the speech must appear to bear the school's imprimatur, or in Justice Alito's words, to be the school's own speech so that a reasonable person would think the school had approved it. This reaches virtually all expression in student publications, performances, extracurricular activities, and more, stripping students of their voices. Schools try their best to avoid the material disruption standard because it's hard to satisfy. They claim that all cursing is lewd and therefore can be punished, even when students read aloud from classical literature or mutter to themselves thinking no one can hear them. Some schools have even begun to assert that what students say in the classroom and in written homework assignments handed in only to the teacher is school-sponsored expression, though no one in their right mind could think that the school had a chance to understand it and approve it before the students submitted it or uttered it. This approach severely limits the range of viewpoints in our classrooms, especially since teachers in many jurisdictions are not allowed to disagree with the text that the school board has selected. And there are many disputes about what viewpoints should be part of the official curriculum. I won't go into them, but think about disputes over how to teach such subjects as biology, including evolution, and courses on sex ed, and even American history and slavery. Let me briefly anticipate some common concerns about giving students too much freedom in school. Recognizing students' constitutional rights will not undermine education at all. There are two concerns. It's going to undermine education, or it's going to put people at risk of their safety. 
regarding the first concern, education, preserving the school's educational function is the essence of the material disruption test. So disruption does not have to be tolerated. As for the second, safety, schools may always clamp down on speech that's illegal outside of school, like true threats, a narrow constitutional standard, very hard to satisfy, but also harassment, libel, and so forth. And more important, even speech that's protected outside of school by the Constitution that threatens violence or serious disruption, but it does not rise to the level of a true threat under constitutional law, may always be silenced by a school before it causes problems while officials contain the speaker and investigate whether there is cause for concern. Safety comes first. So that's the taxonomy. The principal or other official has to first figure out what kind of speech this is. The student's own that's not lewd, not pro-drug, or school-sponsored, and then within that taxonomy uh, apply the correct test because each of these has a slight, slightly different formulation. Was the libertarian moment just wishful thinking? That was the spirited debate at the Cato Institute in March. Debaters included Ramesh Panuru of National Review, Matt Welch of Reason Magazine, and Connor Friedersdorf of The Atlantic. First, Cato's executive vice president, David Bowes. And in the sweep of history, the main point I would make here is America is a libertarian moment. Not one particular year, not one particular day, but in the scope of history, America is a libertarian moment. Historians and political scientists have always identified the fundamental American ethos as values such as individualism, laissez-faire, anti-statism, and that's different from most places in the world and most of history. Closer to our own time, one of the things that I think we can say about the nature of politics in our modern times, I got this originally from Mark Lilla, is the 60s and the 80s both happened, and they actually happened in the same generation. The 60s, a decade of cultural liberation, of sexual liberation, uh, counterculture, that sort of thing. The 80s were the era of Reagan's tax cuts, Reagan's entrepreneurialism, the beginnings of Silicon Valley, and as I think Lilla said, uh, the, the theme of both of those decades is do your own thing. Now, the people who voted for Reagan may not have thought they had something in common with the people from the 60s, although I'll bet some of them were the people from the 60s, but the fact is do your own thing was the, the, the central element of both of those times. And in that sense, the 60s and the 80s were both quintessentially American. Because in America, many of our social movements over two centuries have been reiterating these fundamental values of individualism, anti-statism, and laissez-faire. Abolitionism, the anti-war movement eventually, the civil rights movements, the women's movement that took much of the 20th century. All of these things uh, were part of the basic American idea. David Kirby and I have written a lot about the libertarian vote. How many libertarians are there in the American electorate? David and I used a fairly tough 
criterion in our study, the libertarian vote. We use three questions from Gallup and other uh, series of public po opinion polling. And we said the people who said yes to all three of these questions are libertarian. We got about 15%. However, we tried something else. We said, you know, one of the one of the essential points about libertarianism for American politics is everybody talks about the blue Democratic base, the red Republican base. We said, what about people who don't fit into either one of those bases? That's what libertarians feel like. What would, what would identify people who don't fit into either one of those bases? Well, one way is simply to say to people, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal? Pretty loose definition of libertarian, but it does mean you're saying, I don't quite fit into that Republican box. I don't quite fit into that Democratic box. And so we did a poll in 2006, and we found that 59% of the respondents said, I would describe myself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Now, half the survey got a different question, which was, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal, also known as libertarian? Now, we knew when we put this unusual, maybe not well-known word uh, onto it, that that would reduce the number. Took it down to 44%. So 44% of Americans were willing to accept the term libertarian if it meant fiscally conservative and socially liberal. That was a lot more than I expected, so I thought that was pretty good. And now, Ramesh Panuru, columnist and senior editor at National Review. I would say that the popularity of the libertarian moment really was tied to a set of ideas about politics, about politicians, about votes. Um, and if folks wanted to correct that impression, they may have, maybe they should have done a little bit more of that in 2014 uh, and not be in the position now of insisting, well, you know, it's really nothing to do with Rand Paul and how well he does uh, in the primaries. Um, the Great Reason essay, which is it's good, it's interesting, it's a worthwhile essay to read, uh, defined the libertarian mo moment as a time of increasingly hyper-individualized, hyper-expanded choice over every aspect of our lives, from 401ks to hot and cold running coffee drinks, from life-saving pharmaceuticals to online dating services. And the essay went on to uh, say that that moment was, this libertarian moment is based on a consensus around two hard-won insights. Markets are generally preferable, being the first insight, the second insight, that at least vaguely representative democracy is the least worst form of government. Well, if that's what the libertarian moment is, if that's all it means, then I'm happy to concede that we are, in fact, in a libertarian moment. Uh, but I would just make two points. First, if that's the way we define it, then we've been in a libertarian moment for a really, really, really long time, maybe even since 1787. Uh, and maybe the word moment is not one that we should be applying here. Uh, and the second is that maybe we shouldn't be applying the word libertarian either um, because you can have rising choice and you can support representative democracy while also having growing government and uh, public support for growing government. Now, Matt Welch, editor-in-chief at Reason Magazine. As someone who co-wrote uh, the essay with this title in question and published it in the magazine, I feel uh, obviously some sense of responsibility uh, for all of this. And I thought it might be helpful to describe a little bit about what we were thinking um, at the time. As David pointed out, this was in our anniversary issue in 2008, the 40th anniversary issue um, that came out in December. And of course, due to the mag miracle of magazine lead times, that mean meant it was actually written in October. 
of 2008. Now let's think, what was happening around October of 2008? Well, we had just had a Republican president uh, stand up on live TV and give a speech in which he said, normally uh, I'm in favor of uh, free market capitalism, but um, we had the Republican uh, the, the nominee for president whose signature legislative achievement was to curtail the First Amendment so that people couldn't criticize politicians and who otherwise major contribution to policy was introducing the notion of rogue state rollback. Look it up, it's fun. Um, he suspended his campaign so he can go back to Washington and support the bailout of the banks. So this was the moment that we were writing. There was a gay marriage ballot initiative in California and he was against gay marriage. Uh, there wasn't anything about the political, headline political moment in the fall of 2008 when we wrote that thing that looked libertarian at all, with the possible exception of, of the unlikely semi-success of the Ron Paul movement there. Um, so part of what we were doing was kind of the, um, the Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber, like, so you're saying there's a chance uh, thing. Uh, if you're being uncharitable, you could say it's like a bunch of... Uh, you know, Marxists sitting around in December of 1989 and saying, well, you know, it's just we got to, socialism's going to really make a comeback any day now. But actually, we were making a point, which is that if you allow yourself to be distracted constantly, which everybody does, because it's our jobs, and it's also interesting consumer sport, but if you allow yourself to get distracted only by headline-making politics, presidential headline-making politics in Olympic years in particular, then you're going to miss a lot of interesting stuff. And what we uh, argued was that a lot of the interesting stuff that's happening in America has a specific, has a, a, a strong libertarian cast to it in a way that's going to ripple through, already has been rippling through culture and society chiefly. And politics, we're using this uh, in this moment, which was a terrifying moment for politics, um, is the last place to be affected by the thing that's otherwise revolutionizing how we do business, how we talk to one another, how we live. We are in this era of hyper-personalization where individuals are finding incredible amounts of autonomy and wherever there is a gatekeeper telling them what to do, whether it's a stupid taxi monopoly, whatever it is, whether it's a booking, you remember travel agents? Let's say we to a travel agent, right? I used to, but now it doesn't make any sense, right? So we rerouted around all of those things. What we were arguing in this initial essay is that this is happening, it's with us, it's going to happen to politics and governance last. Literally, they will be the last ones to see it happen because they have a guaranteed revenue stream and we can't really get around it. Uh, but even then, within the tumult of politics, if you look closely, there are indicators that some interesting stuff is going on. And now, Connor Friedersdorf, staff writer at The Atlantic. So as we gather today, uh, Donald Trump is as well positioned as anyone to lead the world's oldest democracy. If he wins, I held out hope he may sour on America and leave us for a younger Eastern European country. <laughs> but if he puts his name in gold letters atop the White House and sticks around for four years, our next best hope is that right and left, Congress and the courts, the whole anti-Trump alliance, see new urgency in safeguarding civil liberties, in reigning in executive power, in limiting surveillance, and what I call tyrant-proofing the White House, like paranoid parents child-proofing for a reckless toddler. Now, there are people with different political views than mine who say we found, and this is a quote, the perfect leader for America's moment of perfect permanent constitutional crisis, a person who cares more about results than process, who cares more about winning the battle than being well-liked, and a person who believes in asking what they can get away with 
rather than what would look best. You may be surprised to learn that that isn't Breitbart.com on Donald Trump. It's Matt Iglesias describing Hillary Clinton at Vox before Donald Trump's rise. If she wins, the progressive left will unfortunately opt out of this tyrant-proofing project that I'd like to see happen. Uh, Matt went on, committed Democrats and liberal-leaning interest groups are facing a reality in which any policy gains they achieve will come through the profligate use of executive authority, and Clinton is almost uniquely suited to deliver the goods. More than almost anyone else, she knows where the levers of power lie, and she is comfortable pulling them, procedural niceties be damned. A kind of democratic Dick Cheney in that sense. Then again, maybe Ted Cruz will pull out a victory, and I'm afraid in that case that while Democrats will rediscover their Bush-era objections to executive power, Republicans may well bring back John Yoo and offer defenses of police officers so unqualified you'd swear that they don't have YouTube. Ted Cruz has also come out in favor of the FBI as it tries to secure a backdoor into all of our smartphones. So, as usual, there are mostly worrying scenarios, maybe only worrying scenarios, this election cycle. Still, I stand by a belief that libertarianism is just fine, that it's won some big victories in the very recent past, and I expect it to win more. Back in 2014, amid a debate about whether America was having a libertarian moment, I urged against judging this question based on an unrealistic standard. Conservatives and progressives are widely judged with the understanding that most political change happens gradually and on the margins. But especially in the press, antagonists and champions alike often act as if libertarian success would mean a radical shift toward an ideologically pure, uncompromising, small government utopia, or dystopia, depending on who you ask. In reality, of course, libertarian ideas will only ever be implemented incompletely and gradually in the system of checks and balances that we have. And the question is whether future voters will support policies that enhance liberty compared to the status quo. If that's what we mean by a libertarian moment, I think that we're coming off several and we can expect many more. Ten years ago this month, the Cato Institute launched a daily podcast, and for almost nine of those years, I have been your humble and at times not-so-humble host. On the Cato Daily Podcast, I talk with scholars, journalists, politicians, and others about the nitty-gritty of public policy at the federal, state, and sometimes even local level. On the Cato Daily Podcast, we cover topics from taxes to drugs to war, technology, privacy, political philosophy, and the history of libertarian ideas. So if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Consider it a personal favor to me. To learn more about the Cato Daily Podcast, visit cato.org slash podcast. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.